As you know, we are moving here through the Gospel of John in chapter 1, and we've been talking about the first disciples, and we have been looking at them being called by Jesus in the different ways that he chose to call them. We have John in the narrative, really unnamed, but he is here, and we've talked about John as we even began to study this great gospel. We have seen the call of Andrew, and we're encouraged by that. We've seen the call and the conversion of Peter, and we have talked about last time Philip. That brings us up to Nathaniel. And I love this particular section here. There is so much to encourage us here in this passage before us in the, the account of Nathaniel. And I have divided it up into three different sections. First of all, you'll see here in the narrative is the invitation from Philip, where he comes to Nathaniel and invites him to come and see Jesus. Then there is this great but brief conversation as we have it between Jesus and Nathaniel. And then there is this wonderful expectation for the future that Jesus places before Nathaniel as he gets to know him. So three things, the invitation, conversation, and the expectation. Let's read through the passage, shall we? I'm going to finish chapter 1 tonight. I have a great sense of accomplishment as we come to study these verses. And it'll be even greater as we finish, I'm sure. In verse 45, it says, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Well, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, And how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, Hereafter you will see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What a thrilling account. And what a wonderful way to cap off the account of the call of the different disciples here in this first chapter. I think this is the one with the crowning touch in so many ways. But let's begin, shall we, and dive into it by talking about the invitation that comes to Nathanael from Philip in verses 45 and 46. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Here is Philip's witness. It is interesting to examine his witness. He saw Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. We have found him. I like the fact that he says, we have found him, because you remember, it was Jesus that found Philip, really. He didn't go looking for Jesus. Jesus came looking for him. Now he comes and he doesn't say, I have found him. He says, we have found him. There's a group of us. A group of us are now with Jesus. The Messiah has come on the scene and he's gathering a group unto himself. And he's effectively saying, I've come to make sure that you become a part of that group. And he says to him that we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets did speak and write. So he sees Jesus as a fulfillment of the scriptures. Now, why is this here? 
I'm sure there are other things that were said, but why does John record these words? Well, because John is not just casually throwing in comments as he goes along. John, as you recall, is writing his gospel with a very clear-cut purpose, a clear design. And that is to reveal Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. So he doesn't just casually throw in these comments from Philip. He puts them in, he chooses them out from whatever was said, and he puts them in by design because it suits his overall purpose in writing his gospel. This statement that we have found the one of whom Moses and the prophet spoke is really in keeping with the main thrust of his gospel. John is wanting to reveal Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's activity with man from the very beginning, all of his communication. From the very beginning, back in the garden, after the fall, when there comes the prophecy of the cross, all the way through up until this point in time. What is being shown here by John is that Jesus is the fulfillment of thousands of years of communication from God to man. He was the focus and he is the fulfillment. And that is why these words are recorded here. It's much like you find in John 5, if you could turn over there to the right. In John 5, John records some specific words of Jesus to bring this out further, crystallize it right out of the mouth of the Master. And here Jesus says it himself to the religious leaders who were students of the Scriptures. He says, you search the Scriptures. You spend your whole life searching the Scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. You think you have eternal life because you're students of the Scriptures. You think you have eternal life because you're the guardians of the law. The scribes, the custodians of the law. He says, but let me tell you something. These are they which testify of me. In other words, go back and look again with an open heart and see that the scriptures point to me. I am the fulfillment of everything. And this, of course, is John's design in writing his gospel. So Philip is then saying, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 45, this is the person on whom all of the previous divine communications from the beginning until now have focused, he is here, come and see him. So he saw Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, this is important, keep that in mind, because we're going to see some other things about his witness that are really contrary to this. These are things that he knew, these are things that he saw, and these are important things that fit John's purpose. But another thing is that not only did he see Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, but he seemed to see Nathanael as a very earnest seeker. And that is borne out by the passage. Look at verse 45 again. It says, Now Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets did speak. We have found him. It seems to indicate that here is a man, this Nathaniel, who is a sincere seeker. You would not come and tell someone who wasn't seeking the Messiah, we have found him, the one of whom Moses and the prophets did right, because that would be of no interest to such a person. So to seek out an individual right after your own conversion and come and announce that according to the scriptures, this one has appeared, you would find the one whose life was given to that the one who was seeking in the scriptures to know about the Messiah. And so his efforts coming to Nathanael are pointed. And we find that Nathanael's knowledge of the word then had him waiting for the Messiah. And this is so tremendous. God is so good. 
I remember when we studied the book of Daniel, I was amazed to see how detailed the prophecies were of the Messiah and His coming. All the way down to the fact that if you understood the prophecies, you would have been waiting at the eastern gate of Jerusalem with all the crowd that was shouting Hosanna, ready to crown Him King, and it would have been because the Scriptures foretold it. So that those that came to the Scriptures with an honest heart saw something that others who came with a dishonest heart did not see. Here is a man who is waiting for the Messiah because he's been studying the Scriptures. I think it's obvious that that is the case with Nathaniel. Understanding that, then you can begin to realize why Nathaniel gives the response that he does, which I think is very often misunderstood, in the next verse. We have Philip's witness, then we have Nathaniel's response. And it says in John 1.46 that Nathaniel said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I've read over that for years. Some of you have too. And I've often sat back and thought, Here's an interesting thing. This guy seems to be a little cranky, somewhat prejudiced, somewhat uninterested even. And yet then the very next thing we see is Jesus says to him, Behold an Israelite indeed, a man in whom is no guile. Wait a minute. I just saw his guile only a few verses before. Jesus, wait till you get to know this guy. You'll change your mind. But I always thrilled to be able to have time to study a passage, you know, in detail and come to some new conclusions. And I've come to a new conclusion here. Philip comes to Nathaniel. Nathaniel, after hearing his witness, said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Seems like he's saying, Nazareth, lousy place. I don't even like the people over there. And all of us over here where I live, it's common knowledge that nothing good can come from that place. Kind of a cross-town, cross-village rivalry, prejudice thing. But I don't think that is even the case at all. You see, the prejudice, to me, seems to have come from Philip. See, Philip comes and gives him his witness. Look at verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Now watch what he says next. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And the response comes, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You see, here's what happened. Philip comes to Nathanael and he gave him a faulty testimony that confused him. What we have here, what seems to be a, a word of prejudice, is really something that comes in response to the confusion of a faulty witness. Here is a man who's been studying the scriptures looking for the Messiah. Now if you were with us on Christmas Day, then you know that we studied the prophecy that was very familiar to almost all the Jews, at least the ones that knew the Scriptures. And that was the prophecy in Micah 5.2 that said that the Messiah would come out of the town of what? Bethlehem. So here's a man who would be delighted to know that the one has come who's the fulfillment of the Scriptures. But the very next thing that is given to him is that he's Jesus of None other than Nazareth. Hold, hold everything. Wait a minute. Nazareth. So when he says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? In the context, Nathaniel is saying this. How could the Messiah come out of Nazareth? He's got to come out of Bethlehem. I mean, even the rats that were part of the palace group with Herod, the high chief priests, they knew that. 
So here he says, how could this good thing come out of Nazareth? He's not being prejudiced, saying it's a lousy place, creepy people, I doubt it. He is saying, how could it be so when the scriptures that you're telling me he fulfills point to Bethlehem? So what happens here is what seems at first glance to be prejudice on the part of Nathaniel, I believe, is really the confusion of a faulty witness. But there's something else here. As you look at this, there's not only the confusion of a faulty witness, there is also the comfort of a faulty witness. Bless Philip's heart. He came to Nathaniel and he told him all he knew. It isn't that he was trying to be sloppy. It isn't that he was trying to confuse this poor fellow. He came in his fresh new zeal and told him all he knew. What he knew was that Jesus was currently from Nazareth. That is what he knew. And that he was reputed to be the son of Joseph. That's all he knew. Bless his heart. That's what he knew. That's what he told. And to me, the comfort of this faulty witness is this. That is all that God expects of us. God does not expect more of you than you are able to give. God only expects you to tell what you know. And sometimes in the process, you don't tell everything that could be known. And in the process, you might confuse people, but God overrules your faultiness and He goes on to bless your efforts and the telling of what you do know. You see, though faulty, Philip's witness was indeed blessed. But I just thank God for His mercy that he looks at the imperfections of our ministries, he looks at the imperfections of our witness, and he overrides them, and he forgives our failures and our mistakes, and he goes on to bless the truth that we do tell and make us useful. And I thank God for that. I have so often seen this, and maybe you have too. Two individuals who have differing opinions on some of the details of the Christian life, and perhaps both of them are even wrong. I've seen this. We have two individuals who have wrong ideas about certain things. And maybe even on the opposite side of the fence, but they're both wrong. And wrong as they are in some of these areas, they're nevertheless very sincere. And here they go out wanting to be used of God. And I've seen it where both are faulty and yet both are blessed of God and used of God because they're sincere. And they're doing all they can do with what God has given them, as opposed to so many who may even know more and have it down clearer and don't do anything with what God has given them. It's like the man who came up to Dwight Moody one time. Moody had just been preaching up a storm and souls were saved and this individual came up to him and all he could see in the middle of it, here's Moody doing his best with what he had and all this man could see in the middle of it, those souls were being saved, souls were being challenged. This individual saw none of that. All he saw was the language Moody used. And he came up to Moody after his preaching and he said, You know what? Your language is awful. Do you realize you are butchering English, the English language? How dare you get up and preach like that when you can't even talk right? And Moody turned to the guy and he said, I never claimed ever to be a master of the English language. All I'm trying to do here is take what I have found in Jesus Christ and share it with others to do the best that I can do with who I am, with what I've been given, and take it and give it to others. That's all I'm trying to do here. And God has blessed it, and He's overruled my failures and my inadequacies, and I thank God for the many thousands that have come to know Him through all of this frailty. He said, now, that's me. What are you doing with what has been given to you? Other than finding fault with those that are doing all they can do with what's been given to them. 
And the man said, frankly, I'm not doing anything. And he went away, cast down and deeply convicted. Here comes Philip to Nathanael, faulty witness, yes, but overruled by God. How glorious. And Nathanael comes to know Jesus Christ. And may it be so in our lives to realize that, yes, we're going to have our frailties. Do you realize that I think this is true for every one of us? Every one of us is full of exaggerations about some aspects of the truth. And every one of us is full of misapprehensions of other aspects of the truth. There's not a one of us here that has all the light. So if we can understand up front, or at least not up front, but now, having come a ways down the trail, that we all have our misapprehensions and we all have our exaggerations, and thus we all have to some degree a faulty witness, and yet God in His mercy has used us anyway. Perhaps we'll be less critical and judgmental of others and narrow-minded and unloving. And thank God that He's used us and be encouraged when we see Him using others who are so much like us. And so I see here in Nathaniel's response that yes, the confusion of a faulty witness, but also the comfort of a faulty witness. But having said all of that, there's something else I see in his response. And that is the challenge of a faulty witness. In other words, we should always be seeking to get better. Don't you realize that if Philip had come to Nathaniel and said, Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, he is none other than Jesus, born in Bethlehem, according to Micah 5.2, and not even really the son of Joseph, though he was raised by him, but the son of God. Do you understand then... Nathaniel would have just been able to say, Take me to my leader. Take me to him. Instead of, How could the Messiah come out of Nazareth? You see, had he brought him a better witness, it would have been easier for him to come to Christ. And thus the challenge comes, Oh yes, we thank God for his mercy and our faulty witness, but the challenge comes to get better. One of my greatest concerns in teaching the word and sharing the gospel is that my faulty witness would get in the way and hinder people unnecessarily. I know that God overrules and I've seen God use me and so have you. But my great concern to this moment is that I would unnecessarily hinder people from coming straight to Jesus Christ, whether it be getting saved or going on in their walk with Him. And so the challenge of this faulty witness, I thank the Lord that we can get better. I thank the Lord we can sharpen our understanding. I thank the Lord that many of those exaggerations can become balanced views of truth. I thank the Lord that those misapprehensions, perhaps due to laziness in the past, or bad teaching in the past, or whatever the reason in the past, can become full apprehensions. And that we can continue to move toward the center, and move toward the balanced place, so that we can sharpen our understanding of God's truth. And we can go on in seeking the Lord to be tempered by God's love. And that further we can be guided by the leading of the Holy Spirit. So there is a challenge here. Do you see it? And the challenge is to make sure that we do not unnecessarily hinder people, but that we do all we can do to grow and become better and more effective. And I thank the Lord we can change as the years go by. And that is God's intention. He is seeking to mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ, who alone was the only one who never unnecessarily hindered men, always moved in the love of God, always guided by the Holy Spirit. He is the ultimate balance. And you know, another thing is that the challenge here is 
yes, to always get better, but finally the challenge would be this, to always in the end send men and women to Jesus Christ. Go find out yourself. In other words, we get so caught up, I think, sometimes in wanting to display what we've learned, wanting to share all these deep things we've learned and understand, that sometimes in the process we fail simply to point people to Jesus Christ. Look, go find out for yourself. Yes, I realize I don't know everything. I realize I do know some things, but I don't want to confuse you with my life. I want you to go to Him personally. And do you see how that is the thing that overrided all of the faults and mistakes of Philip? The great truth of that is this. If a man or a woman will go to Jesus and say, Jesus, you show me. You open my heart. You open my eyes. The impression they gain from Christ is always going to be the right one. And they will always come away thoroughly convinced by none other than Jesus Christ himself. So the way to safeguard ourselves as we're along the way and growing and changing is to make sure that we always seek to get better, but that we always send men and women to find out for themselves from Jesus Christ. In verse 46, And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. And thus the invitation goes out to Nathanael. That brings us to the next main thing in our outline for today, and that is the conversation with Jesus. In verses 47, running down through verse 49, there are a couple of things here, basically two, that I want to draw to your attention. What you see at work here is, first of all, the omniscience of Jesus. And then you see the response of Nathanael to that omniscience, that knowledge about him. Here Jesus begins to manifest his knowledge that he has about Nathanael, and he begins by giving him an approval of his character. And this speaks so deeply to me. An approval of his character. Look at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. An Israelite indeed. Do you realize how much that says to us? An Israelite indeed. Here is the one that foreordained a plan to draw out a nation of people from among the peoples of the world. The one who revealed God to those people. The one who gave them the law, the scriptures. The one who ordained that these people so blessed by God would be honest, upright, God-seeking, God-fearing people. This is what an Israelite was to be, someone who knew God. Yes, the world around may be pagan, may be outside this revealed light, but inside of Israel there would be men who and women who would know God. That was God's plan from the beginning, that Israel would be the light of the world, to gain the attention of the world so that when the Messiah came, the eyes of the world would already be fixed on Israel, and it would be a natural thing to have a worldwide witness go out from these people. So to be an Israelite from God's point of view, was to be a God-seeking, honest, God-fearing individual. So here now is Jesus, and he's standing with his few disciples he's gathered to himself so far. Now verse 47, it says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. And he said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed. This here is what it's all about. I wish that every Israelite was like this man. Now you guys listen up. We're forming a team here. This is it right here, an Israelite indeed. Why? Why an Israelite indeed? Because this man has no guile in him. This man has no deceit. Now being free from misapprehending 
the thing about the prejudice in the previous verses, we don't have to be bothered here that he really is a man of guile. We already know what's going on with that. So now Jesus says he's a man in whom there's no deceit. Do you realize the premium that our Lord is placing on this man's honest heart here? Do you realize he stops everything, gathers his disciples? It says here that he said of him. He didn't say it to him. He said it within his hearing as he was coming toward him. He said of him. He's saying it so all of them can hear it. Here is a man who has no guile. Jesus is drawing the attention to this man's honest heart because I can't think of anything more. Anything more or anything greater than this in the Christian life, than an honest heart. Everything hinges on this. All of your growth, all of your advances in your relationship with God revolve around this. If there is not an honest heart, there can be no advance. If there is not an honest heart, in the beginning there can't even be salvation. And surely there cannot be any growth when salvation has occurred. Jesus is here making an effort to show this that it is an honest heart that gladdens the heart of God, an honest heart in those that would say they are seeking Him. Here is an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Think of it, a man without deceit. Do you realize how many minds are naturally bent in what we could call a serpentine way? Naturally bent in craftiness, slitheriness, snakiness. Before I was a Christian and I dwelt in the darkness, one of our common words, common jargon, common vernacular was snake. Anybody ever use that word? He's a snake. In the netherworld, in the dark world of drugs, that was a very common word. Look out for this guy. He's a snake. And that meant a lot of things. So many people are snaky in their thinking. They're deceitful in their thinking. They are those kind of people that seem to be in all of their thoughts crooked. May I say it this way, they think in curves. They think in curves. They don't think in straight lines. Jesus is saying here, here is a man that thinks straight. Here is a man that thinks honest. He's upright. Spurgeon said of deceitful people, he said they are those that look one way and row another. I like it. They look one way and they row another. He said they cannot look you in the face when they talk to you because they are full of mental reservations that come from a life of deception. And what Jesus is saying here is that this man, Nathaniel, is not like that. You see, these people that think in curves and think dishonestly and live a life of deception, they never get anywhere with God. What Jesus is wanting his followers here to know is that this is the kind of man who's going to go forward. This is the kind of man who can be blessed of God and receive the fullness of all that God has to give. When we read in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. He is saying this, Here is a man that is honestly ready to yield to the force of the truth, willing to receive testimony and be swayed by the evidence that comes from the power of God's Spirit when he enters a man's life. Do you want this kind of heart? See, I think if you realize the premium Jesus is putting on honesty here, you will crave this heart. This is something I couldn't get off my mind all day. Back and forth, I went across this text in my mind. And the thing that stood out to me the most was this. Do I have an honest heart before God? Could Jesus say of me in a crowd, here is a man who has no deceit within him? 
Or what do you have to say something else? You know, we sometimes read in the Psalms where David says, Search me, O God, and try me. See if there's any evil way in me, Lord, and lead me in the way everlasting. He's saying, God, I want to be a man with an honest heart. Lead me in that way. Have you ever prayed to have a heart like this? I ask God right now, and I pray that you agree with me that He'll give us all this heart. It's just far too easy, isn't it, in a world of deception to be deceitful, to rationalize it, to lie to yourself and lie to others and then lie to God, and then go away and wonder why the blessing isn't there in your life? Oh God, you know I've been seeking you. Oh Lord, you promised if I seek you first. But Lord, I don't see any blessing. And then you begin to review your prayer time and realize how much dishonesty has gone on there, how much lip service has gone on, and how much mechanical behavior in church and just putting in time in the Bible rather than searching the Scriptures to find Him. And you begin to realize why He put such a premium here on this man's honest heart. Here is a man in whom is no guile. May God help us. In Psalm 7.10 it says, My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. In Psalm 24, verse 4 and 5, the psalmist writes and he says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol or sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Who's the one that God blesses? The man with an honest heart. In Psalm 32, 11, it says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. If you are upright, you're going to be able to rejoice. Listen, when you're deceitful, when you slide into a life of deception, it robs you of your joy. You're so tangled up in your web of lies. Spurgeon said people like this, they can't even speak because they're waiting for the words to be mailed from their heart up to their mouth to make sure that they can slowly get them there and make sure that they're covering all their bases of deception when the words finally come out. Faltering in your words, not looking people straight in the eye because you're searching, you're scanning. What lies have I told this person? And the conversations are brief and there's a nervousness. And that is really a tragedy because we need each other in a relationship of honesty and trust to move forward. And surely we cannot go forward if we have dishonesty with each other and dishonesty with God. And so he that has clean hands and a pure heart will receive the blessing of the Lord and the upright in heart will shout for joy. And so we read in John 1.47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. So what is your condition today? Do you sit here in this message with a heart full of deceit? Do you sit here in this message with the finger of God coming gently but more firmly upon you as the time goes by? Do you realize the great premium that is put by God and Jesus Christ here on an open, honest heart before Him? Do you see the need to bring your heart before God, to have it cleansed and energized to be an open, honest heart? Do you have the approval of God upon your character? These are the things we must ask ourselves today. So the approval of His character comes from the omniscience of Jesus. See, don't get the idea that Jesus just reads men well. This is the Creator God standing in the body of a man, the God-man who reads a heart as though it is an open book before him. It comes from his omniscience. 
So the approval of his character. There's also here, I think, the awareness of his devotion. In verse 48, Nathanael said to him, Lord, how do you know me? Literally, the Greek construction is, how is it that you are knowing me now? How is it that we, we stand here like this, and you're telling me things about myself, which I know my own heart. How, do you, how are you knowing me like this? And Jesus answered and said to him, He says, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. You've been on my mind. I know all about you. I saw you. He had gone to sit under the fig tree. We know that. That's clear. But obviously, further, he had gone to sit under the fig tree to be alone with God. That is also clear. You see, in those days, devout individuals in that place in the world loved to have a sacred spot to go and to be with the Lord, to be alone with God. If they were devout, they had a sacred spot. They had their place. And they had their place because they knew if they didn't have a place, it wasn't going to happen on a regular basis. Perhaps this was his place. We cannot know for sure. In fact, I think we would all like to know exactly what was going on under that fig tree. I would. For all these years, I want details. Perhaps he was there confessing, Lord, I see deceit in my life. God, I tried to not be this kind of a person. But you know, Lord, in the last year, I think I have become one of the most deceitful people I know. God, forgive me. God, heal me. God, cleanse me. And God, send me forth from this fig tree as a man with no guile in his heart, no deceit. Perhaps that was his prayer. And then he comes to Jesus, and Jesus tells him this, and he's just knocked out by it. I don't know. We don't know. Maybe he was there just really searching his soul, and maybe it all just turned out in the end to be the sweetest communion he'd ever had with God in his life. Perhaps it was just this time of earnest prayer, searching the Scriptures and saying, God, send your Messiah. I see it here in the Scriptures. Oh, Lord, when will you send your Messiah? Maybe he was there saying in an earnest prayer, God, if you will send your Messiah in my lifetime, I vow that if you will send him in my lifetime and let me be sent to him, I vow to you, God, this day that I will give up everything to become one of his closest followers. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was all of that. Well, we don't know for sure. But there is one thing that is for sure. Something went on underneath that fig tree in that private place alone with God that Jesus knew about and Nathaniel knew about and nobody else knew about. And Jesus says to Nathaniel, he says, how have you been knowing me? How, have you been, how are you knowing me right now? And he says, I already know you and I know about the fig tree. And that just literally opens up something inside of his mind and his heart that brings about this incredible response. But here's what I want you to see. The awareness that Jesus had through his omniscience of the devotion in the life of Nathaniel. And that is so important because we need to know, every one of us, that God is aware of our devotion. We need to know, every one of us, that there is not a fruitless hour or half hour or 15 minutes that we spend in that private place. We need to know that when we are under the fig tree, Jesus sees us. Why do we need to know that? Because we are caught in the sovereignty of God. We are caught in a sovereign plan of an omnipotent God who is like the mighty orchestra leader orchestrating the lives of many thousands and millions of people all over the earth who are following him and orchestrating all of that, moving it toward a, a focused end at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And somewhere down in there is our life, each one of us. And we need to know that there's a gigantic picture 
and that above it all is this sovereignty, and that the sovereignty works its way down into our lives, and that we tend to get tunnel vision. We tend to go to the fig tree. We tend to go to that private place. And we tend to come out again. And if we don't have the immediate desired response from God, we come to Him with our tunnel vision, accusing Him. Where is the blessing? Oh, I've been under the fig tree. And I prayed under the fig tree specifically for this. And why hasn't it happened? We need to know you are seen under the fig tree. God will work His work in a sovereign way. Don't get so caught in tunnel vision that you tend to think He doesn't see you. You see, I can tell you freely, this has happened to me. I have spent years in my life trying to understand prayer, trying to find every example in the Bible where it worked, and to see the truth and the power of prayer. And then I've caught myself and seen myself in tunnel vision where I've gone to God and said, God, I could tell you of hours I've spent under the fig tree. And I can tell you, Lord, that I don't see the immediate proof. I don't even see proof after years of praying on this specific thing. Now, Lord, why? Evidently, prayer doesn't work. And we come to this conclusion, I'm not going to do it anymore. I've been up early. I've been seeking God. Well, no more. I'm sleeping in. I'm going to feel good all day long. Nathaniel comes away from the fig tree and Jesus says, I know you and I also know about the fig tree and don't ever forget it. Be encouraged tonight that all your hours under the fig tree have been seen by God. He is aware of your devotion. Oh, he may not have mapped out your life at this moment to match up to what you perceive your answered prayer should have been. But know this, every word that has left your lips, every prayer that has left your heart, every tear that you have cried has fallen on his heart. And he is aware and he is working. And he is working according to his sovereign plan, your highest and my highest good. And I must come back to this account and know that he sees me under the fig tree and go again tomorrow morning to meet with God, no matter what happens, but to know he is working his great plan in the long term. Here is the awareness of his devotion, and here is the approval of his character. John 148, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So here's the omniscience of Jesus. Now comes the belief of Nathanael. In response to this, verse 49, Nathanael answered and he said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. This is quite a statement. If you realize where we are in the Gospel of John, if you realize where we are in the forming of the disciples and the apostles, if you realize this statement was never exceeded throughout the entire ministry of Jesus by any of the other disciples, it is quite a bit of insight for this early on. You are, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Why did he say that? Why did he come to that conclusion? Because he was drawn out to it by the omniscience of God. You see, Jesus purposefully drew this belief out of him by two things, the work of the Spirit and the work of his word. Have you realized at this point that words are not always the entire part of a conversation? Think about it. Think of a conversation, even a meaningful one, or especially a meaningful one, and realize that words are not always the whole part of a conversation. 
You see, as John writes, it is impossible for him to convey to us in black and white on a page or with some lines of red, it is impossible for him to reproduce the look that Jesus gave Nathaniel. It is impossible for him to reproduce the tone of voice with which he spoke to Nathaniel. It is impossible for him to reproduce in printed words the magnetic influence that came out of Jesus and into Nathaniel as Jesus talked with him. And all of that was going on by the power of the Holy Spirit. Nathaniel comes to believe and say, You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And it is because Jesus drew that belief out of him through the work of his Spirit upon him as they had this conversation together. And then by the work, of course, of his words. And the approach that Jesus takes here is frequently his approach in winning souls. That is an amazing thing. Here is Jesus. He sees Nathaniel coming. He says a word that they can all hear. And then he begins to tell things to him. I saw you under the fig tree, triggering some secret, private, special event, struggle, whatever, that went on under that fig tree that only Nathaniel knew and only God knew. And he is saying, Nathaniel, I know about the fig tree and there is this connection. And he understands there's omniscience at work here because only God could have known what went on under the fig tree. And so through his words, showing Nathaniel that he knows the secrets of his heart, Nathaniel comes to see this omniscience, this all-knowing Christ in front of him. And he says, you are the Son of God. And if you look in the Bible, you see Jesus uses this approach repeatedly. For example, you remember the account, we'll study it, with the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus talks to her, tells her things about her that he couldn't have known. And she responds to Jesus by going away and saying, Here is a man that told me everything about me and brought all the city back out to come and meet Christ. You see, Jesus used his omniscience on that woman and he used it on Nathaniel, and he used it on others. And I'll tell you this, he's using it to this very day. He is. He's alive. He's risen from the dead. And men and women sit in sermons today, and the Holy Spirit is at work, and the Word of Christ is at work. And individuals sit and listen to the Word of God preached and taught, and the secrets of their hearts are exposed. And they're drawn out to God, and they're drawn out to believe in God, and they surrender their life to God. I've seen it happen over and over and over again. It's because the Lord is still working in this way. In Hebrews 4.12 it says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And that's how God's way of working is, and it's always going to be that way. And I do pray that if you haven't experienced God putting His finger on the secrets of your heart yet, and come to place your faith in Him, that you will do so. That you will realize this Jesus is no ordinary man. He is omniscient. He knows you. He knows you. He's seen you. He's walked by you and near you as you've gone through your life. He's seen all of your waywardness. He's seen you at your best and he's seen you at your worst. And he's seen the inside walls of your mind that no one has seen but you. And he has come to rescue you from yourself and from your sin. He has come to show you His omniscience and how much He knows you, that you might come to know Him and His love and His forgiveness. So after this display of omniscience, Nathaniel responds and he says, 
comes to the only possible conclusion. He says, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You are everything and more that Philip told me you were. The conversation with Jesus was a life-changing one. So we've seen the invitation of Philip and the conversation with Jesus. We come finally to the expectation for the future. And I just want to touch on this in verse 50. Jesus answered and he said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? And here comes a promise for the future. He says, You're going to see greater things than this happen in your life, Nathaniel. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. It is a promise of greater things for the future. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about the angels ascending and descending. What does he mean? Is he referring to the fact that maybe Nathaniel was under the fig tree reading the account of Jacob and Jacob's ladder where the angels were going up and down from God to him at Bethel in his conversion? What is he talking about? We don't know if Nathaniel was reading that. Maybe he was. And maybe that's why Jesus brought this up. And maybe this is more to add to the fig tree thing. I saw you. Just want to let you know further how much I saw. You will see angels ascending and descending on me. Nathaniel, I am Jacob's ladder. I am the bridge between heaven and earth. I am the one that draws a man to God. Was he saying someday you're going to be in heaven and see the heavens open and angels surrounding me coming and going? Commentators believe that. He could be saying all of that. We don't know for sure. Again, we could spend the rest of tonight and next time studying what people believe he was saying. Let me say this to you. Whatever he was saying, the important thing to go away with is this. He was saying, Nathaniel, you were given a little bit of light. You were invited by a friend to come to me. Nathaniel, with whatever misgivings you had, with a faulty witness, you came anyway. Nathaniel, you have come. I have exposed your heart to you. I have shown you how much I know you and care about you. Nathaniel, I want you to know that having come with the light that you had, more light will be given. And I believe God would say that to all of us here today. You've responded to the light you've been given. You have come this far. But please don't stop here. Please don't limit God. Please don't think you've seen the best of Him and the greatest of Him already. Please expect greater things and know that you're going to experience them. Because God is infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, and He is full of loving kindness for you. And He has a great long-term plan to show you how good He is to you and how He is capable of bringing you to that place of rejoicing until you overflow with His love. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, thank You for this time in Your Word. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us so much. Thank you, Lord, that you know us. And thank you that your desire with that knowledge, the knowledge of each one of us, of things known only to ourselves, that it is your desire to take the knowledge you have of us and bring us to the point where we have a greater knowledge of you. Draw us by your Spirit and by your words to a deeper relationship with you. And open our minds and hearts tonight to a fresh expectation. And in spite of all the wonderful things we have seen so far, that we shall see greater things than these. For we have come to follow you. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.